This is Yawa Radio. A warm welcome to the Yawa Radio podcast. The Yawa Radio podcast is an opportunity again to listen to one of our inspirational, thought-provoking interviews that we have brought to the listeners of Yawa Radio. Yawa Radio is online 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We are your well-being and happiness radio station, bringing the feel-good feeling to every single day of the week. Check us out at yawaradio.co.uk. Now sit back and enjoy this podcast from the Yawa Radio team. Welcome to Jordan Space. Every fortnight, you can join me, your host, Steve Phillip, alongside Danielle and Paul from the Jordan Legacy team, together with some very special guests for an hour of conversation, music, and above all, hope. Welcome to Jordan Space. This show does discuss themes of suicide, and we'd encourage you to take care of yourself by stepping away from the show at any point, should you find the content triggering or uncomfortable to listen to. For support, please visit our website, thejordanlegacy.com, and our help menu options. Early this month, we marked the third anniversary of the day that my son, Jordan, ended his own life. As we've done each year, we came together as a family to stand by Jordan's graveside to remember and reflect upon his passing and his life. Before we meet this week's guest, Danny, Paul and I are going to spend a few minutes reflecting on Jordan's anniversary and loss anniversaries, if anniversaries is the right term to use, of course, in general. Um, thank you both for being here uh, once again. And, and Danny, I thought I'd come to you first. Um, when we all came together on December the 4th, um, you know, this time I remarked on how it felt in some ways much lighter and, and dare I say, maybe slightly more upbeat as an experience than we'd had in the previous two years. Even around Jordan's graveside, we were chatting and smiling in a way we hadn't done on previous occasions. Did you experience this this too? And uh, and if you did, have you any thoughts on why that might have been? Um, I don't. For me personally, and I think it's probably a sort of coping mechanism. I sort of try to detach myself a bit from the reality of that moment or that situation. And I'm not saying that's the right way to cope. And I'm sure a lot of experts would have something to say about that, but. Uh, for me, that's just how I find I can deal with it. And that might go back to the early but early days of, of Jordan's death and having having to carry on and cope because I had young children to look after and everything couldn't just stop. Um, but maybe a part of it too is that we almost just adjust to our new reality that, you know, the 4th of December is the day that we now commemorate his life as a family. And but I, another thing is I do sometimes think that the lead up to anniversaries like this can be worse. Almost the anticipation of the day, I think, can add additional anxieties and sort of intensify that feeling of loss leading up to it. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, you know, the term you use there about adjusting to the new reality. Maybe, maybe this this is what happens is that you do do adjust to, to the reality. And, uh, you know, I've been attempting to process why things felt different for for me this year was it the brighter weather you know last year we were caught in a torrential storm of, of course um or do things become easier with time that passes and and we adjust to that new reality uh, as i say i i wasn't sure but it was just i, I just found it uh, interesting paul i know that you and i have talked about people's experience of loss previously and in particular 
the term anniversaries and anniversaries can be a, a sensitive time for those who have lost loved ones and not just a suicide, of course. Why is it that anniversaries can be such difficult times for people, do you feel? Uh, they are certainly difficult times. Um, you know, I, I stop every year on, on you know, around the time I lost my father and um, everybody reflects. And uh, with regard to suicide loss, we know there's that uh, additional impact from the shock of it all and, and processing it all and not getting answers to the why questions. So that's an ongoing process for people. So anniversaries and key dates are a, are a reminder and a trigger and that can be a, a, a negative trigger. So it is it is something that we need to think very carefully about. And indeed, um, if you look at the data from the National Confidential Inquiry that uh, the University of Manchester coordinates, they've studied mental health patients who've taken their own lives, and 9% of them have taken their lives on a significant date or anniversary in their own lives. You know, So that you know is really worrying. Uh, on the other hand, it's an opportunity to uh to to remind us to you know get support around people uh, on those significant dates uh and and how help people process that when i was in australia there was a 14 year old girl uh, i knew her father a 14 year old girl who lost uh, a classmate and they all went down the beach and were all together and then they did that the next year and then they did that the next year and then it started to become a problem for them because they're doing the same thing every year and they felt they had to do the same thing every year and they didn't know how to to move on so moving on is a really important part of the process. And I know that you've got, you know, the anniversary again, is that the right right language? You know, the, the anniversary of losing Jordan, but you also post about, you know, Jordan's birthday, you post about um, the last time you saw Jordan. You know, so there's lots and lots of significant dates that we need to think about and, and be sensitive to. And, and I've just a final comment from, from my perspective, thinking back to the interview we did with Sangeeta, but it was really interesting where she talked about how initially she was very much looking back at the event at losing her son Sagar, uh, and over time it's been more about celebrating his life and more about thinking about the future and thinking about other people. So that's that's a really important part of the process. Yeah, thank you, Paul. I think you know I'd had some thoughts about you know whether anniversaries, no matter how painful they are, are you know maybe sometimes like stepping stones to to help us get across to the other side but you know you raise a really important point there that that if if we maybe keep repeating the same things each year are those stepping stones actually allowing us to get across to the other side and and move forward or move on whatever the the language would be yeah the, the fact that you said this year felt different um for you with uh, on, on the anniversary of losing jordan i think that's a good thing I think it's a positive thing i can say as a kind of counselor uh, if you were saying we did the same thing and it felt the same, I would be concerned. You know, and it, it should be it should be different. It should evolve. There's always going to be the sadness there, but there should always be other things to uh, to be part of that experience. And of course, it was also a year on from the Hope for Life conference as well, which was a positive experience for the Jordan Legacy and everybody. Look, it's almost time to meet this week's guest, uh, George Sullivan, and we're going to be talking about his his own experience um, through um, school, um, through some of the challenges he had growing up that uh, led to uh, him attempting to take his own life at university. We're going to talk about that experience of university, about duty of care in general, and and some aspects of, of medication and the impact that that had on his well-being and ultimately his suicide attempt. 
All that after we play some more music. This is Yawa Radio, the well-being and happiness station. Welcome back. A few weeks ago, I attended an online conference titled Medication in Mental Health, Understanding Your Prescription. The conference featured presentations by a number of mental health professionals, pharmaceutical experts, and individuals with lived experience. I think it's fair to say that our guest this week made a huge impression on everyone who heard him speak. I'd like to welcome to Jordan Space, George Sullivan. How are you, George? It's uh, great to have you join us on Jordan Space today. Hi, Steve, Danielle, Paul, and everyone out there listening. Um, before I just go on and say anything, I'd like to say a, thank you, a massive thank you for um, having me on. Um, I really do appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, I'd like, I'd, I am doing okay. Um, I don't want to sugarcoat it and say that it's all going well. Um, as my condition, um, I've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So my moods can be quite infrequent and, and swing quite commonly. Um, but it is looking brighter. Um, I'm happy to say that I received a call yesterday to notify me that um, I will be receiving further treatment and that should be just around the corner. So that's a massive positive. Oh, excellent. Uh, no, good to, good to know you're in, in good hands, uh, George. And look, you know, we, we connected, as I mentioned, as a result of us both attending and you speaking, of course, at the recent Medication in Mental Health conference. In a few moments, I'd like you to tell the story I heard you share with everyone at that conference. Before then, um, can you tell our listeners a little about George Sullivan? I understand you're not long graduated from Oxford Brooks University. Uh, what, were you, what were you studying there? Yeah, of course. Um, so I'll kind of start from the beginning. So my name's George. Um, I'm 25 years old and I currently live in Banstead at home with my two amazing parents. Um, I have an older sister, Mary, who's 27. Um, and I have a younger sibling, Sonny. So I say younger sibling because they are non-binary. Um, and they're in their final year at Bournemouth University studying psychology. Uh, I grew up around in the Manchester area um, at an all-boys state school, and throughout my childhood was an extremely avid footballer, um, and me and the family both also loved to ski. Um, I did have some mental health experiences during my time there, which I'm sure I'll get on to explain the details soon. But yeah, I um, went on to finish my A-levels at the same school um, through sick form, and decided I wanted to secure a sports and academic scholarship to the United States. So following my A-levels, I moved to Florida, where I was meant to spend four years, actually. But um, the experience overall was absolutely amazing. However, a few things occurred, which led me to decide that it wasn't the place for me to stay. Um, so that's obviously when I then came back and had deferred my place at Oxford Brooks University. Um, and I was also studying business and management. And then in 2021, I graduated with first class honours. But of course, there were some traumatic experiences which have now led me to be so involved in mental health and suicide prevention and to use those experiences to help benefit anyone I can, really, and especially those that might be directly affected by such to topics. Would you be happy to share, George, with us, your own mental health journey, you touched on it slightly a moment ago. Um, I understand that your struggles with suicidal tendencies and behaviours started for you when you were just 14. Yeah, um, it took it certainly took a lot of therapy to, for me to process and understand really um, what had gone on at that time in my life for me to feel that way. Um, and there are a few things that I definitely like to highlight, um, a few key, key areas, really. 
So to start, I think it's also important for people that don't know me is that I, I, I wasn't at all a shy, shy boy. I was very extroverted. Um, I was doing well in class. I was obviously quite good at football um, and I had a good group of friends. You could say I was probably fairly popular. Um, and I think we really have to consider this um, because if someone has all those positive things, then society just assumes that they're fine and that they're coping well. Um, but it's because of that image and perception that I felt I potentially would have been disregarded and seen as ungrateful for all that I had, um, but was still facing these mental challenges. It's the people that you least expect that unfortunately we see and hear so commonly of stories after suicide that they were happy, outgoing, loving individuals. Um, and it's because that people assume that they're okay without actually asking if they are. So I guess that played a massive part in, in being 14, 15 years old at school. I did go to an all school, all, all boys school, male, um, male state school. So you could definitely say that I was surrounded by toxic masculinity. The showing of emotion is not something we were taught or was spoken about. Homophobia was also certainly quite apparent. Um, and there was unconscious connection that if you showed emotion at school that it alluded to potentially being gay. Uh, which, of course, was portrayed as this strange, evil thing um, that none of us really knew any better about, if I'm totally honest. Certainly the largest one was the banter, um, which was essentially bullying. Um, but with being surrounded by boys, you've got to appreciate the environment that can be very eat or be eaten. Mm -hmm. So if you... if you try to shy away, it could actually end up meaning that there was an increased level of attention on you to be picked on so you kind of had to fight your corner um and of course i'm I, I i wouldn't be lying if i said i wasn't involved you kind of you had to fight your corner sometimes um the only real experience that i have to compare it with is when i went into sick form and it was mixed sex um and the introduction of females to that environment very quickly eliminated a lot of those behaviors so it's it's very interesting and that's why i do suggest that it, is, it certainly was toxic max masculinity because once the introduction was females was there it it, it kind of dissipated really um anyway it, it it i just remember expiring very quickly if i'm totally honest um i felt quite worthless uh and i started to have suicidal thoughts um and suicidal ideation um started self-harming um and i think all of that that was going on at school was was the trigger um i think it's important to highlight that parents who should be looking out for their children when i was going through that kind of thing i was very much masking my emotions um it's a bit of a negative the fact that i can be so personable because i can then i then understand how to operate in society and know how you should present to people so it's very easy to hide that i was wearing long sleeve shirts under armors under my tops to hide my arms um and of course i was it's a bit of a difficult one for me to say um but a lot of the reason why i'm going back to therapy is i have started to process and understand and really recognize that there was an instant where i did attempt to take my own life at that age um i took an overdose of painkillers and i just remember crying myself to sleep um 
and waking up the next day and acted as if nothing had happened. Um, and of course, I didn't want the school to tell my parents. Um, it was actually only until I was starting to recluse and kind of become far less extroverted. I was becoming very introverted, walking out of lessons, being far less attentive. Um, and it wasn't actually until a teacher noticed those kind of behaviours. But he got me to see the school counsellor. And I just remember her asking me, just don't you don't have to say anything to me, just write some, write your thoughts down on a paper and 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 I can read them if you don't want to tell me them. And I do just remember it just being things like no one cares about me. Um, I don't want to live anymore. I don't see a future. Um, and I look back and think that those thoughts were being reinforced because I knew how to mask it. So if no one knew that I wasn't okay because of how I was masking it, then no one would ask if I was okay. It's about asking, not how are you? Because I feel that's become such a generalized and generic phrase in our, in our dialogue now as humans. I think it's far more direct and means a lot more if you're saying, how are you doing mentally? Um, are you okay emotionally? Now, it sounds like, you know, as you say, there was a, a tremendous amount of masking going on and, and you, you know, you reflected on the fact that we often ask parents to, to look out for their children. But if, if those behaviours have been well hidden, that's, that's not too easy. Because of my masking um, and because the school picked up on it and I was seeing the school counsellor, I was very much adamant that you can't. I told the school, you can't tell my parents this is going on. I said, just please don't. Please don't tell them. I thought in a society and environment that I was surrounded by, that I had to be this tough, um, regimented, shown as if nothing is wrong kind of person. Um, so that actually stopped me from being noticed um, and getting any help from any kind of health service. Um, it was, there, there are certainly instances that I look back on in my life and occasions where I slipped through the safety net of of care and the duty of care and i think that's certainly very important to highlight um in this conversation because the fine lines between and and specifically dealing with suicide is saving someone's life and not is so fine um and it could be one minute situation that could have been picked up on um but of course what we must recognize is that if we do recognise self-harm and if we do identify a child that is self-harming, that any kind of confidentiality needs to be broken. There is a duty of care there that that is a sign of threat to life. And if they have said, don't tell your parents and, and those kind of behaviours are, are presenting, that confidentiality has to be broken um, because it could save their life. George, thank you for now. I think uh, we're going to take a few minutes uh breather now there's a lot of information you've shared with us uh let's take a break and listen to some more music and we'll be right back with the rest of your story right after this you're listening to yawa radio and we love to bring you details of the inspirational book of the week We love to bring you the inspirational book of the week. And this week's book is The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. It's all about turning simple disciplines into massive success. 
You know, why is it that some people make dream after dream come true, while others just continue dreaming and spend their lives building dreams for someone else? One simple reason, Jeff suggests, is that uh, those that are successful have found their slight edge. The slight edge is not just another self-help, motivational tool of methods you must learn in order to make up the path of success. No, no, no. It simply shows you how to create powerful results, how the simple daily activities of your life by using the tools that are already within you. So, this week's inspirational book of the week is by Jeff Olson. It is called The Slight Edge, Turning Simple Disciplines into Massive Success. This, this is, is Yawa, Yawa Radio. Radio. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest this week is George Sullivan. From the age of 14, George had experienced issues with his mental health that led, at the age of 23, to an attempt to take his own life. Um, as we discussed earlier, you attended Oxford Brooks University, and it was in your final year there. You made an attempt one night to end your own life. Um can you tell us what happened? I understand it was actually more than one attempt you made on that evening. I was in my third year at university when when lockdown in March 2020 hit and I was living at home but working on a placement year. So it was a year out and a experienced industry. I was fortunate enough to be furloughed by that company. Uh, they could have easily just cancelled the contract. But what that meant was that I was now locked in my house without anything to do. Um, and that's when my thoughts and uh, emotions kind of overwhelmed me and increasingly became more negative and I didn't really know what to do with them. I began abusing drugs. I'd, I'd had a history of, of abusing drugs, um, but I, got, I began abusing them secretly in my room um, whilst also abusing alcohol as well. The thoughts and emotions were increasingly becoming more negative. Um, so I returned back to university in September 2020, um, again in lockdown. So our lectures were online. Uh, it was getting into winter now, so it was very dark, cold and, and gloomy. Um, and students didn't really have any outlet. I was working on my degree, but also abusing drugs um, until this night in October 2020 happened. So it was actually on the evening of um, my friend's birthday, which kind of makes it slightly slightly worse really um and we were doing the same as usual um again this was taking ketamine and, and drinking alcohol and i just remember something in my mind kind of snapping and just altering um ketamine is a, is a dissociative drug so i essentially started to seriously believe that this wasn't real um that this was kind of like a film or a video game so I tried to run in front of a car on the walk home, which both of them stopped me from doing. Um, and they were obviously very scared, but shocked and confused. But we got into my flat. And at that point, I was explicitly explaining to them that I, I, I don't think I should be here anymore and that it was my time to go. So I ran to the kitchen and grabbed a kitchen knife and tried to stab myself, uh, which the two of them thankfully ran in and wrestled it off me um thankfully they were there to, to to stop all that and 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 be the voice of reason yeah really they locked me in my bedroom with one of the boys while 
The other one was outside my room calling the police. Um, I saw the glass of water on my bedside table, which I launched at my friend's head, which smashed on the wall behind him to distract him. Um, I ran over to my bedroom window, climbed onto the neighbor's roof, ran over that roof and, and dived off. Um, I didn't, I didn't look to, I didn't stop to look over the ledge. I, I didn't stop to think about what I was doing. There was one aim in my mind. I fell almost three stories. So around 25 feet. Um, and realistically, the, the only reason why I, I believe I'm kind of sat here telling this story is because I hit a car before I hit the pavement. Um, that ended up really saving my life. Um, so I was, I was knocked unconscious and woke up in hospital with cuts and bruises everywhere. Um, I had a punctured lung. I've got a six inch scar down my stomach that I'll probably have for the rest of my life. Um, my pelvis and, and coccyx have been traumatized as with my brain um, and, and, and my psychology. And I was really lucky to have survived. I woke up in that hospital bed and the first things that I asked for was where's my watch and where's my phone? Um, and I think certainly through therapy, I've understood that that's a sign of quite an ill mind considering that I'd asked for two things that really weren't going to help me in that situation. George, on a previous show, we interviewed Lee Fryer, a former police inspector whose son Daniel died by suicide during his first term at university. And one of the things that Lee and others are campaigning for is a petition to ensure that all universities have a statutory duty of care when it comes to the well-being of their students, uh, which is something we talked a bit about before, the duty of care. And um, how aware was the university about your mental health problems? I think, again, that this is another occasion where um, the safety net failed me. So firstly, my, my GP at home organised an over-the-phone psychiatric assessment following the incident, um, which they deemed after everything that had happened that I wasn't a risk. Um, make of that what you will. I, I was in shock and denial, but you can't really allow someone who has just jumped to what they thought would be their death to say that they aren't a high risk. Um, and we have, to, we have to remember that the highest suicide risk is for someone that has already attempted to take their own life. The university only knew about my situation because I was applying for mitigating circumstances, um, having had two weeks off at home to try and recover from my injuries. Uh, I don't think universities are doing enough to keep their students safe. Um, and, but I also understand that it's difficult given the nature of contact time and the population size. Um, but during lockdown, especially, I and many others felt forgotten about, marginalised, um, brushed aside, really. Uh, no one, no, no one really hears about how difficult lockdown was for for university students, um, especially after being told it was going to be face to face and to pay for accommodations, and then for it to all be online, it, we felt exploited really. Um, but I had to tell my module sem module and seminar leads that I wasn't going to be present for a little while, um, but I was too embarrassed and ashamed to explain what had happened to anyone publicly. Because of my denial, though, it was actually I only really accessed the university counsellor because uh, the two friends that witnessed the event that night asked me and wanted me to do it. Um, so I filled out a form and explained what had happened and, and they did fast track me for support. 
Um, and I really appreciate the two of them for, for doing that because otherwise I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't have uh, have even thought about going to get wellbeing support. Um, but it's also important to highlight that at that point I was really only going to satisfy them. And if I don't accept that anything is wrong, then it's incredibly hard to be receptive to any kind of help. You know, it's very distressing to hear about um, what you've experienced there, and clearly there are issues. Clearly. Now on reflection, telling us the story, issues in terms of risk to yourself, risk to others there. Um, and you've talked about medication, but you've also talked about drug abuse. And you've also talked about, you know, people maybe should have seen this. And, and there's issues around who you go to with that or who you get referred to with that. So kind of the question that keeps coming to my mind is, at what point did you actually get a diagnosis? At what point did you... Um, you know, were you prescribed medication as opposed to, uh, you know, illicit drugs? And I know from my own experience and from my counselling and from my research that, uh, you know, a lot of people, once they get into that system, they realise how inexact a science it is. And they've often had a long time to get a diagnosis and a long time to get the right um, treatment or the right medication. So I'm just interested in your own experience as far as that's concerned, George. So I returned back to university acting as if nothing had happened um, and just used my work as a distraction. I had graduated from Oxford Brooks. Um, so this was around May 2021. I had secured a job back with the company that I was working for on placement and I was living at home. So that's really where the distraction stopped and the depression and PTSD really set in. About two weeks before my birthday, my 24th birthday, I was actually planning to take my own life. And if it wasn't for an event that happened in Bristol following a, some delusions that I had and an argument with friends that I punched a wall and thought I'd broken my knuckles, I went to A&E and that is where I was finally captured by the system. Um, it was just that nurse, I just remember her sitting me down. She was so compassionate and just so soft with her question and just said are you all right are you what how how did this happen and I just I just broke down I just remember breaking down just saying look I'm I'm not safe I don't I don't know what to do with myself probably people listening to this might find it extraordinary that so long has elapsed since your first you know, suicide attempt how can you not have had more intensive support and treatment and recognition after your first suicide attempt? I, I, th I think it was because of how embarrassed, ashamed and in denial I was about it. The signs were all there, but I was just so in denial. I was so adamant that it was this freak incident of taking drugs that had uh, just boiled over and, and, and happened. But the system is clearly... Yeah, the system... The, the, uh, yeah, the system's I, kind of ticked you off their list. I did get a call from my GP... Uh, from the psychiatric team for right. sort of assessment, asking me questions. Um, and I remember those questions being, are you suicidal? Um, have you thought about taking your own life? And at that point, because it was so fresh, I was like, no, I, I, I just said no. Um, but I, I suppose I understand you have to take my side of patient experience, but as a healthcare professional, they're not trained in suicide prevention, which is just shocking. Like I said, attempting suicide is the single biggest risk factor for yeah. someone to attempt again. And they just totally disregarded that. 
they, they that didn't even cross the mind. George, um, how much of the work you do now discusses medication and, and mental health problems? My my perspective of it is that antidepressants, certainly SSRIs, are a means to an end. So I would definitely say try and find one that works for you if you are being prescribed it. There are so many out there that it's essential that you do test the waters with some of them. The long term, the long term goal, the long term means that will get you to a better place is the psychological help. Um, so take take the medication, but don't just take the medication is my is my opinion. It was the psychotherapy for five to six months after I was released from hospital that gave me the ability to really see a future, to be totally honest. We often hear of people who've experienced mental health issues or suicide who've turned their lives around and and how they've gone on to inspire and help others. I'd like to tell us a little bit about how things have changed for you in in a very positive uh, sense. And and when that moment um, happened that you first realised that you were going to use your experience to to help others. My own own initial journey really started once I was felt psychologically sound enough to to begin to talk about so I'd had to have processed and emotionally understood those experiences in order to then go on to speak about them um but yeah so I I knew from my experiences and reading up about it and trying to get any kind of information that I could I noticed there was this massive gap in in people not talking about it enough and it not being on the radar and not being cared about enough. I'm aware that you have your own uh, podcast uh, called Sully's Open Conversation with a strap line, which I really love, by the way, having an unfamiliar conversation in a familiar environment. Um, I thought that, that's, that's a, a great strap line. Um, where did the idea for this particular format come from? Because uh, from what I've seen, the interviews are actually filmed. It's not just a, an audio recording. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm very proud of it. And it's certainly a passion of mine. Um, I think it my 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 struggles recently began during lockdown. Um, and I think some of that was also attributed to the lack of human emotional connection. Um, I couldn't see friends. I couldn't engage with society. And I think we need to focus on what makes us human, um, not living in a kind of digital superficial environment. We need to focus and improve our real one. So that's why I take the time to visit my guests and record face-to-face because it provides that human connection, that subconscious comfortableness, um, but also the reality of how it can be daunting to share your troubles um, and sometimes difficult, but providing a neutral and familiar environment can be used to, to facilitate those conversations. So the show, the show aims to provide everyone with the evidence that those who have experienced mental health problems or mental illness are willing to talk. And I think that's what can sometimes scare people is they don't want to say the wrong thing or they or they might be scared to ask. But certainly I'd say I'd be more scared about not asking. You mentioned Mike uh, a little earlier, <laughs> of course, Mike McCarthy, friend of uh, us all here at the, the Jordan Legacy and kicked of the very first Jordan Space show, I have to say, the very first interview. Um, uh, understand that congratulations are in order for you. You've recently joined Mike and the other members of the Baton of Hope's uh, organising committee. Now, for anyone unfamiliar with the Baton of Hope UK, 
the Jordan legacy played a part in conceptualising and with the early stages of planning uh, what is going to be a UK-wide event. It'll culminate in a two-week tour with a purposely designed baton during the summer of 2023. Can you briefly tell us about your role with the Baton of Hope, George? Yeah, thanks. Thank you, Steve, for um, for mentioning. And um, yeah, I'm incredibly proud. Um, and of course, I was put in touch with Mike um, through my ex-therapist, actually, who is now one of my best friends, funnily enough. <laughs> I, I took the trip up to Sheffield a couple of weeks ago to, to record an episode with Mike, which he then... He then offered to invite me onto the organising committee of, of the Baton of Hope, which, of course, I just could not turn down. Um, UK-wide initiative to prevent suicide, um, bring all the resources and people together that have been indirectly or directly affected by such a tragic event um, to ensure that no one else goes through it either. Um, they have got me, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, <laughs> they've got me on political engagement and I think certainly from my own experiences and the experiences of the system and how it isn't operating well enough, I, I think I can certainly make some influential changes in the way that that system can then benefit everyone and operate for the consumer. Well, they certainly couldn't have anyone with with any more passion than yourself there, George, which is great to hear. Now, um, before we, we kind of let you head off, you know, our listeners know that we always end our show on a a message of hope. But if you had one important message you'd like to get across, um, what would that be and who would it be for? I'd just like to say that I, I, I'm not special and stories like mine need to be told in order for society's understanding of mental health and suicide and society to develop. Um, hopefully it provides a voice for some of those that sadly no longer have one. Um, and telling my experiences is me hoping that it enables anyone that has felt this way or may still feel this way to recognize that we do care that there is life that life is worth living and um that there is there is help out there um most importantly that you should get better for yourself you have to be selfish in those moments because trying to do it for someone else is shifting the reason and excuse away from needing to live for yourself so learn to love yourself and do it for you. And then when you're ready, you can begin to live for others too. That's a, a wonderful message, George. George, thanks so much for, for joining us uh, today. Uh, it's been a hugely powerful story. Um, I think I've taken a lot away and learned a lot today, but the the really you know powerful message of hope at the end, I think uh, is going to inspire so many people that are, are listening today. So uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Hello, hello, Russell here. Please come join me every Saturday, 3 till 6pm for Russell's Resilience Radio Show. Fantastic music and resilience tips every Saturday, 3 till 6pm. Uh, welcome back. Well, Danny, Paul, um, another really powerful interview there with with George. Um Clearly, um, you know, George is sharing a, a lot of this this information uh, in depth for for the first time. So I know, you know, this was not an easy interview uh, for him at all. Uh, Paul, what, what were some of the, the key things that you really took away from our conversation with George today? Well, I agree. It clearly wasn't easy for George. And I think it's it's not easy for many people to talk about their experience 
we we often use this term you know telling your story because it's not a story it's it's real life and uh for for people who have made you know suicide attempts it's an ongoing process as george said we know that the highest risk group of all for suicide are people who've made a previous suicide attempt and and it doesn't just go away so you know delighted in one sense that george uh decided to open up about this distressed on the other hand at listening to what he's experienced lessons for us all there uh and different people might get different lessons from it but again for me it's about getting support around people i can believe that you know after that um, suicide attempt that he described um or that you know the psychotic episode that he described that he, he it was kind of almost dismissed and out of the system uh you know rather than a really comprehensive follow-up you know so that that is very worrying when that happens well particularly when you say you know that that you know george at that moment falls into the highest risk category as well yeah i mean if that isn't isn't a, if the system doesn't work in, in a situation like this then clearly you're going to expect it to fail in lots and lots of other situations um I, I applaud George for for disclosing. I hope that he he um, you know he goes gently in terms of and I've, I've just given this message direct to George goes gently in terms of giving talking about his experience on his terms, um, something that actually he benefits from as well as other people benefiting from. We shouldn't um, we should never exploit people. Uh, who choose to to give their own stories? We should always support them and uh, and um, you know do what we can to help them along that path. Yeah, really, really good point, Danny. Well, you know what what was what was you know some of the things you you took away from the conversation with George? Yeah, I think a couple of things that stood out for me. One one that you just were chatting about then, but one that it was frightening that it was only because of his attempt, his suicide attempt and, and applying for mitigating circumstances that the university really recognised the extent of his mental health problems and um, so evident that it's important there's a better system in place to support students while they're at university. Yeah, and of course, um, something we've we've spoken about before, haven't we, with, with, with Lee Fryer? Mm-hmm. And, and another thing is just when people are on medication, how important it is to ensure that if people are prescribed antidepressants that it is closely monitored and given alongside therapy if it can and particularly if if a side effect is suicidal thoughts and and how George said you know medication will work differently for different people and that really has to be taken into consideration. Yeah I think that's a really important point that came through loud and clear didn't it uh, about the importance of not just taking medication in isolation that um, and this came through at the conference that I attended as well that George was speaking out from the experts um uh, the medical experts there saying it, it really medication needs to be prescribed alongside psychological therapy um as well so yeah really, really yeah and, really- and Steve I'll just echo a couple of other points there that uh, absolutely that should go together some people need medication at certain times and it's important to know when to start and when to stop and and that is a really careful process and the treatment obviously for George the psychotherapy has worked for him it's good that he's having another course of psychotherapy and I think there's also parallels with the previous guest with Steve Carr Uh, you know once you start opening up you're not just opening up about one incident in your life you're opening up about a whole bunch of stuff uh, some of which you've not been conscious of before so uh I'm really pleased that psychotherapy is working for George and and more people should try different types of therapy. It won't work for everybody, but um, 
it works for some at certain times. Well, thanks to you both and to our guest, George Sullivan, for joining us on this week's show, which is, of course, our last show for 2022. Um, I think it's been exciting for us to be able to launch Jordan's Space this year, and the feedback has certainly been really positive from the amazing guests we've had on sharing their stories and their journeys. We've got a lot happening at the Jordan Legacy in the lead up to New Year. We've got a brand new website coming out, and Jordan Space will feature really clearly and prominently on that new site, uh, as well as a lot of work we're doing around our zero suicide frameworks for launching the new year um, as well. So thank you both uh, again for for your contributions this year. And for everyone listening, if you found our shows in general and today's show, of course, helpful or simply interesting and insightful, you can listen to recordings of the previous shows on our website at www.thejordanlegacy.com. You can also engage with the Jordan Legacy via our social media sites and uh, LinkedIn company page, the Jordan Legacy CIC. We're also on Twitter and Instagram, and you can find us on both those sites using the username at Jordan Legacy UK. So that's it for 2022. Um, Danny, Paul, thanks very much both. Um, I think we'd all like to wish everyone listening and uh, to everyone out there a safe healthy and hopeful christmas and new year i hope everybody has a peaceful and restful christmas and a new year yeah. a big thank you for taking the time out to listen to this podcast from the team at Yawa Radio. Remember to check us out live online 24 hours a day, seven days a week at yawaradio.co.uk. And if you'd like to join us as a guest on Yawa Radio or as a guest on the Yawa Radio podcast, we would love to hear from you. Simply email studio at yawaradio.co.uk. Once again, a big thank you for taking the time out to listen. This is the Yawa Radio podcast. Copyright applies.